Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 24th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is Find Info Like a Pro, Investigative Research on the Internet. Our topic today is also the title of a new book by our friends and colleagues, Mark Roche and Carol Levitt. Depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you can either order or pre-order this book at the American Bar Association's web store. Mark and Carol are a great husband-wife working team. Jim and I have had the pleasure of reading several books by Mark and Carol, including The Cyber Sleuth's Guide to the Internet and The Lawyer's Guide to Fact-Finding on the Internet. Besides these books, they've written many, many articles for legal publications all across the country. And they offer seminars on these topics around the country. Probably many of our listeners have had the opportunity to see them at some point or another. Mark and Carol, welcome to the Digital Edge. Thank you, Sharon and Jim. Thanks, Sharon and Jim. It's great to be here. The new book, Find Info Like a Pro, Volume 1, Mining the Internet's Publicly Available Resources for Investigative Research, uh, certainly has a long title. How is it different from the Lawyer's Guide to Fact-Finding on the Internet, which the ABA Law Practice Management Section published in 2006? Well, Jim, first of all, our goal is to help lawyers save time and money with their Internet research. So both books have that same goal. Now, the new book is shorter. The Lawyer's Guide to Fact-Finding on the Internet was 800 pages, and it focused on four main topics. Investigative research using publicly available records, investigative research using public records, company research, and factual research. We decided that was a bit much, and plus the book was very heavy. People were getting tired of lifting it. So we decided to divide the Lawyer's Guide to Fact-Finding into four different volumes based on those four topics. The very first volume is the one we're talking about today, and that one will focus on using the Internet to find publicly available resources. Now, we tested every single site again. We updated our discussion about every site. We also added new screenshots if anything had changed. And then, of course, we added new, new sites, new information, and in particular, we added a complete new chapter on social media sites, MySpace, Facebook, LinkedIn, and also microblogging services like Twitter. We also talked a lot about how to get internet information admitted into evidence. So those are the main differences between the 2006 book and our upcoming book. There are a whole lot of books out there about internet research. What makes your book different from some of those? I, I think it's, it's one of the points that Carol made in that we try to help the readers of the book do their research more efficiently and more effectively. And one of the ways that we do that is that rather than just putting together a laundry list of the websites that we talk about, we actually, we've, we've tested all of the sites out. We, we look at the book sort of as the, the missing manual to the internet when it comes to research for attorneys. We not only provide an overview of what's at the site and how to use specific features of the site, but we also provide suggestions on how lawyers could use the site in their practice. We have, rather than just picking one best site in a particular category, we'll also suggest alternative sites that, uh, that can be useful. What we're really trying to do is, is to save lawyers the frustration of visiting websites that might look like they have information that is, is useful to them 
or at one time had information that was useful to them but have changed over time, or sites that appear to offer information for free when they're actually just looking to, to sell information that might be available from another resource on the internet for either less money or, or for free. We also have tried to organize the book more logically, more to the way that lawyers might be thinking when they need to do this kind of research. Rather than having just an alphabetical list of websites, we've ordered the sites in the book topically. Each topic begins with what we feel is the most useful website, and then we, uh, again, describe how to use the site and, and mix in a, quite a, a bit of narrative in terms of how other attorneys have used the site, what information they've found that makes it useful. And we do it in a standardized format so that very quickly, once uh, a reader has begun to use the book, they can see whether they can see the name of the site, they can see its URL, they can right away see whether it's free or not. Um, they can see the, the content, the information that's going to be there. They'll see our view of the site, our opinion of how and why it's useful, as well as specific tips on locating uh, information at that site that might not be apparent by looking at it. And then at the end of the book, there's a CD-ROM that includes links to all of the sites that are discussed in the book. So in addition to using the book as a uh, sort of a computer-side desk reference, uh, attorneys can also use the CD-ROM almost as a collection of favorites to jump right to the sites that they're most interested in using. Mark and Carol, as you know, some lawyers already use the Internet a lot to research uh, factual issues and others not so much. I'm going to give you a real softball question here and say, what's the very best reason that a lawyer or other legal professional would need to buy Find Info Like a Pro Volume 1? Well, I think that most lawyers learn about legal research in law school, and they never really learn about investigative research. So they would want to buy this book to help them use the Internet to do investigative research, and in particular, to do it for free or low cost. So the book is intended to help them find investigative research, avoid hiring a private investigator for every little thing, and also to help them find it really fast. This is a great book if they need to find current addresses or phone numbers, if they need to serve parties or contact potential heirs. It's also a good book for lawyers who need to dig up dirt about the opposition or unearth background information about potential clients and even potential heirs. What, what are the primary types of information that you guys are finding that lawyers are looking for on the Internet? It's, it's really a wide range of, uh, of information. We're, we're focusing in, in Volume 1 on publicly available resources, kind of information that is available if you know where to find it from various sites on the Internet, like, as Carol was suggesting, addresses and phone numbers, information about it, people's backgrounds, their education, their occupation, uh, sometimes place of employment. There's no good database, either for free or, or, or certainly from a pay resource, where we can find out where people work just by entering their names, for example. But through the publicly available resources like the uh, social networking sites where people post information about themselves, we now have a, a pretty reliable source where we can find information regarding where people are working. Also information from publications, either newspapers or other periodicals, books, articles, e-newsletters, uh, the blogs that people post, their, their personal websites, their work websites, information about uh, people's hobbies, their interests, their civic and volunteer work. 
all sorts of information that they post when they think it's for a very select audience, their friends and family, etc. But if they leave the information available, it can become very useful to attorneys doing jury research on uh, prospective jurors before they're in panel, or their own clients, or the opposition that uh, they're facing in the matters that they handle for their clients. Very often, expert witnesses will post information about presentations that they've made at conferences or to their own clients of PowerPoint presentations, Excel spreadsheets, Microsoft Word documents that have been created and used for one purpose offline, but then have been posted online as a way to illustrate one's expertise. All are available if we know where to look for them. There's one attorney recently told us how he was able to understand impeach the testimony of an opposing expert by producing copies of articles that the expert had written that directly contradicted the testimony that the expert was giving in this case. The attorney found the articles on the internet in a major national periodical for which the expert witness wrote. Now, it, it, it didn't take a private investigator to locate that information. It didn't even take a paid database to locate that information. In fact, the, I'll, I'll leave a cliffhanger for the listeners. The, the free sources for many of the periodical, newspaper, journal resources that this attorney used to locate this article to impeach the opposing expert, we discuss in volume one to find info like that and how to find them for free. What's the difference between publicly available resources and public records? Jim, that's a great question. And as I said in the beginning, we're dividing the book into those two topics. Volume one is going to be about publicly available information and volume two will be public records. So for example, a public record would be anything that's kept at a government agency and is available to the public to peruse. For instance, real estate records in most jurisdictions. With the advent of the internet, it's become very easy for us to find these public records online, often for free. Now, in contrast, we have the concept of publicly available resources, and that's anything that's not kept at a government agency, but is on the internet and can be found for free or at low cost. And just to give you a couple of examples of what we mean by publicly available resources, that would be any kind of information I can find out about someone in their own website, or perhaps in their social networking profile, or their blog, or reading about something they said or did in a newspaper or magazine article. All of this would be easy to find free on the internet if you read Find Info Like a Pro. It sounds like the internet is kind of the answer for all the lawyers' research needs. I'm not sure that's true. What do you guys think about that? And, and what do you think about pay databases? We absolutely agree with you, Sharon. I, mean, I think there's, there's certainly this there's a feeling out in the world, and it's not just lawyers. I think many people think, well, everything is on the Internet, and the answer to every question is on the Internet. It's available for free. I just have to go to Google and type in some keywords, and, and I will find an answer. We're not suggesting that the, the free Internet is the answer to every research question that an attorney has. But there are some of the publicly available information uh, from non-traditional resources, like Carol was just talking about with regards to information that people post about themselves, uh, that's not going to be available in a paid database. It doesn't make it any less valuable, though, because of the breadth of the information that the people post about themselves. Uh, also, more and more jurisdictions and more and more agencies are putting more of the public records 
that they hold online where they can be searched for free by the citizenry, where previously the only access to those electronically would have been through a paid database. So in some instances, the free internet is replacing paid databases with regards to the availability to some, and I, and I stress some, public records in particular. But paid databases still give us the ability to do multi-jurisdictional public record searches that we can't do for free on the internet. They also have other information that they compile from various sources like credit headers, including names, addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers that we're never going to get for free on the internet, but are only available to licensed professionals with a verifiable business need to access the, the information. So I, I don't think the internet has replaced paid databases. I think they've just become another powerful tool that attorneys need to be aware of to make sure they're casting the widest and most complete net possible. What's your best tip for finding a missing person? If we're looking for a missing person, a missing witness, missing heir, a missing client, if an attorney's looking for clients who they can handle, one of the, the things that we like to do starting out is to establish whether or not the person is dead. Because if we can, at the beginning of the search, establish that the person is dead, we can save a lot of time tracking down last known addresses, phone numbers, acquaintances, etc., to find out where the person is located when we're never really going to be able to contact them, at least not to be able to talk to them. But we know people who have saved a lot of time in locating a missing person because they've established right at the beginning that they're dead. And we like to do that using the Social Security Death Index. The Social Security Death Index, I think, is a great example of sort of a quasi-public record. It's publicly available through the Social Security Administration. And up until the advent of the Internet, if you wanted to access the data, you would have to license it from the Social Security Administration through a database vendor, a quasi-governmental database vendor called NTIS. We can go to the genealogical website, rootsweb.com, and we can search the Social Security Death Index with its 85 million reported deaths back to 1962 for free. Or we can license that same database from the Social Security Administration via NTIS, and for one person to do unlimited searches through the database for one year, it's $995. So this is, this is the kind of sort of direction that we're trying to give readers, uh, certainly attorneys, but really any readers of the book, to locate information that you can get from a paid source. It's the exact same data. The copy or the version of the database at rootsweb.com is updated once a month. You can get the same information from a government source. It'll cost you $1,000 a year, or you can search it for free on the Internet if you know where to find it. You know, we leave that choice up to the reader. We're not going to tell them how to run their business, but we think that saving that $1,000, or we think that $1,000 is better spent elsewhere. You know, I understand that you guys have a tip, which I can't believe, for searching for someone when you only know their, their first name. Now, I happen to be married to a guy named John, <laughs> and there's a lot of guys named John. So tell me, what, what is this tip for searching for someone when you only know their first name? Well, Sharon, in my past, I was a law librarian, besides being a lawyer, and believe it or not, I was asked to find people where the lawyer only had the person's first name. Maybe they thought they had the last name, but they didn't know how to spell it, and there actually are two different ways where you can search by someone's first name. First of all, I used to use pay databases, 
and they let me search by first name, but here's the catch. I had to add in some other identifying information. So I could search for John, for instance, but I would probably add his last known city or his last known state. Or if I had a phone number, even an old phone number, I could link that together with just the first name John. So that's how you can do it with some of the pay databases, in particular Accurant and also Westlaw. You can't do that using the pay database Merlin. And Merlin is a pay database that I use quite a lot for investigative research. Now, if you want to do the same type of search for free, then I would sort of apply the same idea to just Googling someone. And I would Google the person with their first name, and then I would add in any kind of identifying information that could help me narrow down the search. Anything I knew, knew about the person that I thought would be linked with their name somewhere on the web. And that's basically how we do it. And it also helps if you have a really unusual first name. <laughs> John, John wouldn't be your first choice, huh? <laughs> Definitely not. Or Jim. <laughs> Why would a lawyer use a social networking site to find a missing person or gather background information about a person? Well, I, I think there, there are two reasons, Jim. One, you know, we've touched on a little bit, and it's because people post amazing amounts of information about themselves when they think that the information is meant for a very targeted audience. They tend to share more than they should. And because many people leave these social networking profiles open and available to anyone who can access the social networking site, like a, a Facebook or a MySpace, etc., they can be rich sources of information when we want to know about people. With regards to locating missing people, sometimes it depends why the people have gone missing. One example, we were able to locate uh, an attorney who's a retired judge, uh, who's married to a retired judge, and she had gone missing. But because we knew that they had a daughter who fit sort of squarely in the social networking demographic, she was a college student, we were able to locate her MySpace profile. And because she left her MySpace open, uh, her profile open to the public, we were able to view it. We were able to see the photos that she posted. Uh, there were indications based on where she had lived, that she was, in fact, the daughter of the attorney who we were trying to locate. And so we were able to send a message to her through her MySpace profile, indicating that we wanted to contact her mother, the attorney. And within 24 hours, we had a phone call back from her mother, the attorney. Now, it, it's obviously, it's a little different when people don't mind that you're looking for them. When they will contact you, if you have good news for them, if people are hiding out, it can be another story entirely. However... Very often, it's not just the profiles of the people who are hiding out that we're able to locate, but we are also able to locate the profiles of their online friends or their family. And if those people, their friends and family, are in touch with the person who we're trying to locate, very often we can get a clue as to the whereabouts of our missing person based on information that their friends or family puts in their profiles. There was a, I think there are at least two incidents in the last six months where I can recall fugitives, international fugitives, literally being sought by Interpol, have been captured because of information that their relatives have posted in their Facebook profile. They, there, there's one instance in particular where a woman posted a photo of herself and her husband with, I believe it was her sister and her sister's husband. The problem is that the sister and her husband were wanted for bank robbery in Europe, and they were hiding out in the South Pacific. The authorities were able to locate them based on the information in those profiles and arrest the husband and wife and the sister 
and brother as accessories. And once again, justice triumphs. That's 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 justice, great. Justice triumphs overall. Yes, <laughs> well, one of the questions I know I get asked all the time when I lecture on social networking is people always ask, are there any ethical issues involved in using social networking sites to investigate someone? And of course, that's often asked by lawyers. Now, uh, of course, I know the answer is yes, <laughs> since I answer this question all the time. But I'm sure they'd like to hear something about what the ethical implications might be, because not everybody listening may be aware of them. Sharon, I don't have a problem with lawyers looking at people's public profiles on social networking sites, but I think where lawyers have to be really careful is not to cross the line and try to contact someone and be accused of getting into an ex parte communication. And, and we're talking mostly about, obviously, exchanging messages with an opposing party. Now, as to private profiles, that's a whole nother issue. And the Philadelphia Bar Association just issued an opinion in 2009 their professional guidance committee advised a lawyer that it would be unethical for him to ask a third party to contact an unrepresented witness and try to become that person's friend in order to peer into her private profile. And they wanted to use information from the pro private profile at trial. They thought there was something in there that was relevant. And the professional guidance committee said that this actually would violate three different ethical rules. They were most concerned about the fact that the lawyer was asking someone to do something that they thought was deceiving. Deceiving in that they were pretending to friend someone when they really had an ulterior motive to use the information at trial. So that particular opinion is 2009-02, uh, and we have the full opinion printed in the Fine Info Like a Pro book. How can I find somebody's cell number or fax number? Well, there's there's no good directory for cell numbers or fax numbers on the internet, either free or pay. Uh, some of the pay databases that Carol mentioned earlier, uh, Accurate, Merlin, etc., they're they're working to put together directories of cell phone numbers, but they're they're still pretty hit or miss. And in the the previous edition of Lawyers Back to Fact Finding on the internet, we talked about a a free uh, cell phone directory. Uh, but it was all self-reported. I, I did a worldwide search for to talk about common names. John Smith. How many John Smiths do you think have cell phones in the world? Th there's probably a fair number. I got, I think, six results, uh, really illustrating how non-comprehensive this self-reporting cell phone number database was. So now that you know how you not to find them, <laughs> to your question, Jim, how you actually find them, gets back to the volume of information that people post on the internet, forgetting that it's available to anyone who can find it is if it's posted on a publicly available page. So one of the things that we've found useful is if we type in someone's name into, into the search box of our favorite search engine, and we add in additional keywords, sort of the way that Carol described searching for someone by their first name, except now the keywords that we're going to type in are cell or cellular. Or if we're looking for a fax number, we might type in fax or facsimile. Because very often people will post either on their own websites or on their blogs, or if they have a biography posted at some professional organization to which they belong, sometimes their contact information will be included in that biography, including their fax number. Sometimes less common, their cell numbers might be included. Also, when we're searching through the Google Groups database, and that's a sort of a whole other universe that we talk about, of available information in Find Info Like a Pro. If people are posting 
comments to these public discussion groups that we're able to search through the Google Groups database, sometimes their full email signatures append to the bottom of the message. And it might include a cell number or a fax number if people have included that in the signature line for their, uh, for their email messages, particularly if they're posting from work. Uh, also, and this is mostly true for uh, tradespeople or contractors, if, if they post classified ads online, even at sites like Craigslist, if we can search for their name along with those keywords, cell or cellular, we will occasionally turn up those kinds of classified ads where they've indicated that they're ready to do your job and you can call them any time of day or night because here's their cell number and you can call them regardless of where they are. So those are two of the ways that, that we've been able to locate cell and fax numbers for free on the internet. Well, I think if I ever have to hide out from the world, I'm going to read the book so I know how, how not to expose myself. Mark and Carol, that's a lot of useful information in a very short time. I can see I need to read this book. Please do remind folks how they can order your book, and thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, and you can order the book by going to the APA's web store. Listeners can also find more information about doing this kind of research on the Internet and keeping up to date with new sources at our website, www.netforlawyers.com. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Ms. Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.